I want to ask you just very quickly to turn in your Bibles. Just put your finger in John chapter 20. And uh, we'll be turning there in a second. I think you would agree with me. I hope you agree with me when I say that the church of Jesus Christ is the only hope for our broken, sin-sick world. The church is the means, I believe, and I trust that you also believe, the church is the means through which Jesus intends to save this world. The church is vital to the cause of Christ. Now, you remember the book of James uh, was necessitated because ultimately disobedience had characterized the early church. Remember Jesus right at the very beginning, he says, you'll be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. I want you to go and make disciples. So take my message and, and go out into the world and share the gospel. And what did the church do? They stayed put in Jerusalem. They, they enjoyed the fellowship. They were in the temple. They were having a great time. They were celebrating this, this new faith that they had discovered. And they were living in disobedience. And so what the Lord does is he sends a persecution. And he scatters them. That's why he, James begins, he's writing to the, um, you can see it in chapter, chapter 1, he talks about to the 12 tribes in dispersion, to the 12 tribes scattered, scattered to the wind all over Israel and beyond into the empire in order that you would be little churches presenting the gospel to the world. These early churches These little scattered outposts of the kingdom of God were were footholds where the gospel was being proclaimed 10, 12 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And Christ was using these little churches, feeble as they were, these little fledgling churches, in his battle against the kingdom of darkness. It was these little Jewish churches that were the the vanguard of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that would go out into the world and transform culture. And what the church has accomplished in the last 2,000 years is literally breathtaking. Or better said, what Jesus has accomplished through the church in the last 2,000 years is breathtaking. And it's exciting to think what the Lord is going to do moving forward. Each church embodied the gospel. Each church impacted its culture. Each church was called and, in fact, was involved in transforming its world. And this was the plan that Jesus had for his church. So if you go to the Gospel of John, chapter 20, or chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 17, verse 20. I told you to go to chapter 20. I was wrong. Chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus prays for these little churches. He prays for our church. And this is what he prays. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me. That the world may, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. You see, Jesus' vision for the church 
was that little scattered congregations, at first dozens of them, now millions of us would be scattered all over the, all over the world, all over the empire, all over the world. And that we would live in such an extraordinarily different way that the world could not but take notice. That we would live in such a way as to prove to the world that Christ is with us. Make them one. Make them unified. Allow them to, allow them to enjoy an ethos of peace and oneness and love and joy so that the world might know that you sent me. An ethos unlike anything the world has ever experienced. You see, that's what the church is. The church of Jesus Christ is a gathering of people filled by the Spirit of God, so radically transformed by the Spirit of God that the environment that we create, the ethos, the feeling of the place, the depth of love, the unity, the peace, and the joy is stark. It is shocking because nothing in the world can replicate this. And when the non-Christian comes in, he senses the presence, the living presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that was Jesus' plan for his church. That's why he had to send the apostle, or at least not the apostle, Paul. That's why he had to send Saul of Tarsus and that fierce persecution to get this process started, to get the church out of Jerusalem, scatter them, disperse them out into the world that they may become these little outposts of the kingdom of God that would serve to transform the culture into which they were placed. You see, the church is an environment of love, an ethos of unity and peace, that is only created, can only be created by the living presence of Christ in our midst. And a place where when non-Christians come into this, they sort of gasp. They're, they're taken aback. They're shocked. And they say, like, what is this? I've, I've never felt this. I've never seen this. I've never experienced this before. This is extraordinary. What causes this? And we say, Jesus, he's not dead. He is incarnate amongst us. He's alive. He's always been alive. Well, he was dead for three days, but he came back to life. And it's his presence, his power, his love, his life that is transforming us today. And that, that becomes intoxicating. There's something incredibly attractive about that that draws the world. It's a simple prayer that Jesus prayed. Father, build them into a unit. Build them into a perfect unit so that in order that the world might know that you sent me. James knew that the key to effectively spreading the gospel was a church in love with itself. A church with the love of Christ spread freely. A church with the peace of Christ spread freely. A, peace, a, a church where grace and mercy and kindness and love was the context in which people lived. The problem was that these early churches were struggling with that 
They were struggling with it. There was bitterness and jealousy. There was selfishness and ambition. And their behavior was creating conflict. Their behavior was belying the message that they were preaching. They were preaching a message of reconciliation and peace and unity and love and forgiveness and grace. And what they were living out relationally was belying everything they were teaching, contradicting everything they were saying. And James is concerned because he knows that the church is the hope of the world. He knows that the only hope that the the world has is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ being and doing what Jesus has created us to be and do. And if we don't, our mission is thwarted. We can't do what Christ has called us to do. We can't be the salt and light. We can't be that powerful influence going into culture and bringing about transformation and change. He knew that, and so he writes this. He writes this. And at the end of this this little passage, he says this, which is a beautiful little little phrase, and I'd love you to to memorize it. Because it really is the the heartbeat of the church. It it is that which we should strive for in the church. He says this, the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Like if you want to reap, if you want to gather in righteousness, it'll be the result of planting seeds of peace and living as peacemakers. Now, what does it mean to reap a harvest of righteousness, to gather a harvest of righteousness? Well, obviously, harvest of righteousness is, is godly and, and holy living, people living righteous lives, but I think it's much more than that. I think a harvest of righteousness is men and women transformed by the gospel, sharing the gospel with integrity, having a context that validates their words, and their message so that when the non-believer comes in, they hear and they feel a message of truth that Jesus is alive and I sense him in this room and those people are converted. A harvest of righteousness are people who are brought to Christ, brought into the kingdom of God through a church that is living and preaching the gospel faithfully. And what James envisions for these fledgling little churches 10, 12 years after the resurrection of Jesus is that these people would live in such a way and preach the gospel in such a way that there would be a symmetry between their words and their lives. And that would create an ethos of love and peace and joy and unity that people would come into and say, in all of my life I have never experienced this. I've never experienced this. I sense the presence of God. Now, only God can do this. We can't manufacture it. We can't make it happen. Only God can do it. And he does it when we preach the gospel faithfully and peacemakers plant Seeds of peace in order to reap a harvest of righteousness. So James challenges these churches. He says, look, look at what you're doing. 
Stop it. Be wise. Think about the consequences of your behavior. He challenges these churches to deal with the sin and and those issues that are creating disunity, those things that are contradicting the message of the gospel, those things that would prevent them from enjoying the harvest of righteousness that they should be realizing. So here's the question. Is there a harvest of righteousness that we're missing out on? Because some of us, although we are committed and believe the gospel and sometimes present the gospel, are living in such a way as to contradict the gospel and therefore nullify our message. Folks, I don't think there's anything more powerful on the planet than a group like this church committed to orthodox preaching of the gospel and an orthodox living of the gospel. Because when that happens, that church is filled with the Spirit of God in powerful, radical ways. And when non-Christians intersect us, whether it be our small group or they come into our family or they come into a worship service on a Sunday morning, they'll sense something because we are like nothing else on the planet at that moment. Nothing else in the world can even begin to approximate what the church of Jesus Christ is like when the church is acting and functioning in the way that Jesus has designed us to. And we become like a a flame, and the non-Christians are like moths. They are drawn to that flame. So if we want to see a harvest of righteousness, what is it that we must do? Well, James says, he says we must be wise. And he gives us four things that we must be wise about. And the first thing is this. we got to be wise, have the wisdom to practice what we preach, to literally live what we say. Verse 1, chapter, I'm sorry, verse 12 of, of chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? Well, by his or her good conduct, let him show his works in, me, in the meekness of wisdom. So James, again, he's in verse 1, he has already talked to those people who are aspiring to teach. He's back to the same point. He's talking to those people who aspire to the office of teacher, or at least who want to be influential. And he speaks to the wise and understanding. The word wise there is a technical term. It really refers to a, a teacher, who, someone who was wise, someone who was understanding. He's using a word used to describe a skilled expert, a learned teacher who has theological knowledge. And James says that this person must show his qualification to teach by his godly behavior, a behavior that flows from the meekness or the humility that comes from wisdom. James is saying that teaching and being qualified to teach is not just based on whether you know your stuff. It's not based on just whether you have the theological, intellectual understanding We've got to be wise enough to know that if we're going to try to teach someone, we've got to live what we teach. We've got to practice what we preach. Truth must be complemented by an accompanying godliness that's rooted in wisdom. A wisdom that marries 
a life that testifies to the validity of the truth. See, just knowing the truth doesn't qualify us to teach anybody. It's knowing the truth and allowing the truth to change and humble and sanctify us that makes us effective teachers. It's living the truth, right? So this is true of me. It's true of anyone who teaches Sunday school. It's true of a mom and dad who are trying to raise their children. It's true of anyone who is trying to lead and teach by example. It's true of all of us because in some respects, all of us have that responsibility. And one of the things that can truly undermine the effectiveness of a church is the damage that this kind of hypocrisy can cause. People who know the truth profess to believe it and don't live it. That person's life denies the truth, contradicts the truth, undermines the truth. Doesn't make the truth untrue, just makes it very difficult to believe what that person's saying. And you know, you can think to situations in the past where where people who have had a prominent place in the kingdom of God at a particular church, and they've disqualified themselves by not living, not practicing what they preach. What does that do to the credibility of the message? What, What does that do to the effectiveness of the gospel in that person's presentation? It doesn't make the gospel untrue. But it simply causes people to say, well, it's, it can't be believed. It's not believable. There's no credibility. Why would I ever believe a word that he or she says? So that's not sort of like on the macro scale. There's been a lot of men who have stood in pulpits and, and taught and then had lives, their lives blown up by sin. And people have shrugged and said, well, obviously, if that is how he lives, you can't believe what he says. That's, that's tragic for the church. But it's also true in your home. It's also true in your home, because dad, you're a teacher. Mom, you're a teacher. You teach your children. One of the real blessings of having pastored a church for 32 years is that you, you, know, you dedicate little kids, and then 20 years later, 30 years later, you marry those same kids. It's, it's a beautiful thing to watch. And, and you watch parents raising their children. And I can look back on, on my ministry and I can see the, the incredibly painful consequences of inconsistent parenting. And you can see the beautiful consequences of consistent parenting. You can see the impact when a dad says one thing and does another. The hypocrisy. Kids see it. Even little kids see it. And you can see the beautiful, powerful, transformative impact that a dad or a mom's example has when they say one thing and they live it consistently and faithfully before those kids who they're teaching, not only by their words, but by their actions. It's a beautiful thing. So I stand back now 34 years later and I look and I see heartbreak. I literally see families where not one kid is following Christ. 
And I look at other families and I can see where all of those children are following Christ. And if I'm honest and I look at it and I examine it, I think the responsibility lays with the dad. And how the dad, with one side of his mouth, said one thing. And then out of his life came another message. Don't do that. If we're going to be the church that God calls us to be, there has to be an integrity. There has to be a consistency. We've got to practice what we preach. Now, none of us will ever be perfect. I am not a perfect man. I make mistakes. I sin. We all do. But one of the most powerful things that you'll ever do to your kids or to your wife or husband or somebody in this church is go to them and say, look, I blew it. I made a mistake. I sinned. I was wrong. Would you please forgive me? That's a powerful culture-creating, ethos-creating dynamic that doesn't happen in the world. Something is done by the Holy Spirit. So practice what we preach. Secondly, we must have the wisdom to live authentically. And this one sort of grows out of the first. Look at verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Some people in these early churches were jealous. They were envious. Some of them were bitter. They'd been hurt. They're wounded. And they're carrying bitterness and unforgiveness. Some were selfishly ambitious. They had an agenda. They had a plan. They wanted the church or a decision to go in a particular way. They were eager to advance themselves no matter the cost that that might be to another. And so these churches were conflicted. Perhaps not all of them, but many to whom James is writing are conflicted. Some people were being hurt. Those people who were bitter, jealous, envious, they, they had been hurt. Some people were doing the hurting. Generally, selfish, ambitious people are happy to step on others to get to where they want to go. And you can see implicitly, this is just my thought, this is just my take on the passage, but I think you can see implicitly that James is not just talking about random sins. He's talking about victims and perpetrators, people who have been hurt and are dealing with their hurt not very well, and people who are hurting and continuing to hurt. And that's a recipe for huge conflict in any church or any family or any home. Unresolved hurt and ongoing damage. So James says, don't boast and be false to the truth. So when I, I read that this week, I thought, what in the world is he talking about there? As I thought about it and read about it, tried to understand it, I came to realize that it's important to not just define truth as, as objective reality, because it obviously that's the way the word is translated most of the times. But sometimes the word can also be translated to express one's personal feelings, one's personal truth at a particular moment. How one is, how one is feeling. Personal truth that corresponds to my reality at this particular moment. And so what James is saying is this, I think. Don't boast that you're okay if you're not. 
Don't boast that I'm okay, even though you're hurt, you're bitter, you're un, you, have, you have unforgiveness in your heart towards someone else, you're jealous of what somebody else has, you're envious, you know things aren't right in your soul, and somebody comes along and says, how are you doing? Great. I'm great. Alternatively, don't ignore, don't dismiss, don't diminish the damage that you are doing by your words and your actions. As you advance your agenda, as you selfishly push what you want done, done in your home, in your marriage, in your church, in that committee, in that ministry. I think what James is saying most simply is this, don't cover up or deny the truth of what's in your heart. If you're hurt, if you're bitter, admit it. If you're jealous, if you're filled with envy about something or someone, admit it. Be honest with yourself and with others. And if you're self-seeking and proud, dominating, wanting your own way, hurting others, stop for a second and admit it. You're causing damage. Don't lie against the truth. Don't boast that it isn't an issue. Don't pretend. Be transparent and be authentic. Be authentic. Be real. It's so hard, though. Many of us, most of us, I would say, don't do this. When we're hurt, we tend to deny we're hurt. Don't we? Honestly, think about it. When someone hurts you, the inclination is to sort of minimize the hurt. When you feel rejected, you feel put down, you feel excluded, you've been wronged in some way, the instinct is to try to trivialize it. But it's still there. It's just bubbling away inside. And when our selfishness and our pig-headedness and our stubbornness and our selfishness hurts others, what do we do? They'll get over it. It's not that big a deal. You see, people on either side of this equation tend to do exactly the same thing. The people who are hurt deny it or minimize it. The people that do the hurting deny it or trivialize it. And what James is saying is don't do this. Don't have an inner life, a heart that you know is broken and wounded. Don't have an inner life, a heart that you know is damaging others and deny it. Be real about it. Be truthful, be authentic about what's going on and what you're doing. So the question is, why do we do this? Why is it that when we are hurt, we're inclined to say, oh, I'm fine, no, it's okay, it's okay. And you know that there's this bitterness, this jealousy, this anger down inside just churning away. And why is it that when we hurt others, we tend to say, ah, they'll be fine. They'll get over it. Why is it? You know what the answer is, I think? We do it so that we, have to, we can avoid the hard work of peacemaking. Don't we? 
We do it to avoid the hard work of peacemaking. We much prefer to be peacekeepers. The apparent absence of conflict is interpreted as the absence of conflict. And James says, this is not the wisdom that comes from God. But this is earthly, it is unspiritual, and it's demonic. Being honest about where you are, either as a victim or as a perpetrator, is hard to do. So much easier, as I said, to deny it. So much easier to follow worldly, unscriptural, unspiritual, and demonic wisdom. So I want to show you two verses real quick. Matthew chapter... um, 18, verse 15. When you are hurt, here's the solution. When your husband says something to you that hurts, and your wife says something to you that hurts, and it's not just that you can be forbearing and she's having a bad day, but it cuts, it hurts. When a pastor says something to you that wounds you deeply, when somebody in the church treats you in such a way as to cause real woundedness in you. What does Jesus say? If your brother sins against you, if your sister sins against you, go and tell him his or her fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. Now, we don't need to go on because he spends more time now talking about church discipline and how to resolve the issue of that isn't sufficient. But in my experience... That when you go humbly to a person and you say, look, in that situation, when this thing happened, this is how I felt. And we talked about this about two or three months ago. I felt wounded. I felt rejected. I felt devalued. I felt insignificant. I felt that you didn't care. When, When you approach a Christian, a person with the spirit of God living in their souls, they are going to respond. 95, 98% of the time, they're going to respond with compassion and the grace of God. But that's what we're called to do. When we're bitter, when we're hurt, when we're wounded, we need to go. We must if we're going to be obedient to Christ. And we talked about this verse as well. Go back to chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. This is speaking to the the perpetrator, the one who's causing the hurt. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, have you done something? You've wounded, you've treated unkindly, you have offended, you've damaged a relationship, leave your gift before the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. Now, those are two simple little verses. But in many respects, those verses will gauge the level of your Christian maturity. If you can do those things, God will bless you. If you take the step of faith, step out and commit to following a path of peacemaking rather than a path of peacekeeping, God will bless you. Obedience brings blessing. Do what God says to do. So if you are hurt, if you have been wounded and there is a broken relationship 
There is broken fellowship in our church. We are not planting seeds of peace. We are following worldly, unspiritual, and demonic wisdom. And how can God bless that? How can God work in that environment? Or if you're a perpetrator and you're hurting someone and you know that by your words and your actions, the way that you're conducting yourself, you're leaving a wake of pain behind you. Be honest and go to that person, go to those people and ask for forgiveness. Change. How in the world can God bless a context in which we are living in this particular way? He can't, and he won't. When we put on the armor of God, we don't need to turn there because we don't have the time, but we turn to Ephesians chapter 6 this afternoon and read it. The first piece of armor that you and I put on, the first thing is the belt of truth. Now, you know that he's not talking about theological truth because he talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God at the end of that passage. He's using truth in that passage there in the same way I think James is using it here. He's talking about authenticity, honesty. Folks, we just gotta be honest with each other. We can't live together. We can't bump into each other. We can't lead and follow. We can't, we can't be the church without bumping into each other at times. We can't be in the church without sometimes inadvertently hurting and inadvertently, inadvertently being hurt. So what do we do? Do we stay bitter? Do we stay envious? Do we get jealous? Do we get angry? Do we live with unforgiveness or do we process it? Do we deal with it the way God's called us to? Do we put on the belt of authenticity and live that way, live it out? Or when we hurt people inadvertently and we become aware of it, we've done something we didn't realize we've even done. What do we do? We go, we go. We live authentically. Putting on the belt of truth is the first thing. It's got to be the, it's, it's got to be one of those first things that we learn to do as Christians and the way that we live this out in our marriage, in our relationship with our kids, in the church, in our small group, in our, in our fellowships together. It brings the sweet presence of Jesus' spirit into our midst. It allows us to sow seeds of peace that result in a harvest of righteousness. Thirdly, and very quickly, we need the wisdom to recognize the cost of earthly wisdom. I just talked about this earthly wisdom. James talks about it here. He says it's worldly, it's unspiritual, and it's demonic. And what he's saying, I think, is unless you deal with envy, jealousy, hurt, selfish ambition, and all of these things, rivalry and conflict, this will produce a divided church. And it applies to every relationship of our lives. If we let earthly, worldly wisdom define how we function in our relationships, we will reap a harvest of dishonor and every vile thing. At least that's what the apostle says. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be, there will be disorder. So my point is, if we don't do number two, we're going to get number three. That's, that's the inevitability of it. 
And, and we need to be wise enough to see that. Either we'll process our hurts, we'll confess our sins against one another, or we will have a harvest that is worldly, unspiritual, and demonic. So many churches go here, don't they? How much damage has been done to the cause of Christ? How much damage has been done to the gospel through church fights? It's demonic. Yeah, it's worldly, it's unspiritual, but it is satanic, satanically inspired. And I've seen so many people over the years use what seems so logical, seems so wise, this, this wisdom, and it's been so devastating for their lives. I'll tell you one story. I had a friend who came to, came to Christ in our church years and years ago. Uh, he and his wife were both saved, had a great testimony. Um, he was a business, is a businessman, quite wealthy, and he was, he was befriended by someone in the parachurch ministry. Um, and, and they worked together and, and this man invested a lot of money into this organization and it was great and then the man fell my friend fell on hard times financially and um, he didn't hear from his friend in the ministry and he felt very abandoned he felt used felt that it had been a, a ruse. There was no relationship there. It was all about getting money for this organization. And he was deeply wounded. And he left the church. And so Cindy and I called and said, look, let's, I, I need to, we need to get together. We... No, actually, that's, I'm, I'm lying to you now that I think about this. We bumped into him in a restaurant and said, we need to get together. So I phoned him subsequently and arranged the time, and we got together for a meal. And we talked about it, and I begged with him. I said, this guy, he is a good man. The ministry is a good ministry. Why don't you just reach out to him, have a conversation. When he knows how you feel, you know, 95, 97% of the people, I just said it, who love Jesus and are filled with the Spirit of God, if you say, here's what I felt as a consequence of our interaction, he's going to respond with mercy and kindness and love and forgiveness, or at least asking for forgiveness. My friend said, to the, said this to me. I don't feel comfortable about speaking to him at this time. I think the wisest thing to do is just to leave it alone. And I begged this guy. His wisdom was the world's wisdom. And the wisdom to leave it alone is so prevalent in our culture. The wisdom that is demonic is so prevalent in our culture that we have so many ways to express it. I just wrote down a few of them a couple of days ago. Better to let sleeping dogs lie. Time heals all wounds. Out of sight, out of mind. Why stir the pot? Just leave well enough alone. Don't tear the scab off an old wound. And it goes on and on and on. And that is demonic and satanic. The Lord calls us to be peacemakers. 
So if we have been hurt or if we are the ones who have done the hurt, Jesus says in two simple little verses, the Lord says, go and be reconciled. Plant seeds of peace. My friend has basically shipwrecked his spiritual walk with God. Still professes to be in Christ, but I don't know where he is. The lesson I learned is this, that you can't have a broken, wounded heart and have a wholesome, healthy, God-honoring relationships. You can't have a broken, wounded heart and have wholesome, God-honoring, healthy relationships. I love the little phrase that we read last week, and I'm going to read it again to you. We're talking about the tongue. Now we're talking about something slightly different, but James, uh, Peter says this in, in 1 Peter 3, whoever desires to love life and see good days, remember we talked about that last week? Then, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. See, that's who we are. We are people who plant seeds of peace. We are people who plant seeds of peace. We nurture peace. We grow peace in order to reap a harvest of righteousness. And that's what the church is. It is a place, it's a hothouse, it's a greenhouse where the Spirit of God transforms the heart and causes a man or a woman to become a peacemaker. So that when we are hurt or when we do hurtful things, we do what Jesus says, and we go to that person that we've offended or who has offended us, and we seek peace. We plant seeds of peace, and we nurture peace, and we grow an environment of peace, and the Spirit of God comes and dwells in that place. And the broken and the hurting in our world find us by the grace of God and they walk into the room, literally, they walk into the presence of God's people and they gasp. And they say to themselves, I've never experienced this. I've been in all kinds of clubs, I've sat in all sorts of bars, I've been in all kinds of business meetings, but I have never felt what I'm feeling today. What is it? The answer is, well, we believe that Jesus is not dead. And one of the ways that I can prove that, one of the ways that you are experiencing that right now is that he's here. He has built us into such a unit that you are beginning to believe that God sent him. You're beginning to see evidence that he is alive, that he's with us, and he's changed me and he's changed all of us. And he has created a society that the world has never felt or seen or experienced before. Come and join us. Come and join us. And you introduce that individual to the Prince of Peace. You see, it's not, a, it's not complicated. It's not hard. Preaching a sermon in 40 minutes is... So, I got to finish. 
Fourth thing, very quickly. You have to have the wisdom then to plant seeds of peace. And he gives us seven. He gives us seven. Seven seeds that germinate and grow as we nurture them that become a harvest of righteousness. Purity, Christ-like, a Christ-like disposition. Peace-loving, peacemakers love peace. People who are gentle, considerate of others. Weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. People who are open to reason, there's a good one. That's, that's one that I need to really work hard on. To not think I'm right all the time. Although I, I do think I'm right all the time, but that's a bad thing. Open to reason. Full of mercy. Good fruits. Impartial. Sincere. Not a pretender. Not a hypocrite. Folks, as, as you study those, as you think about those, ask the Spirit of God to implant those in your heart and then begin to implant them in our church. And as we do, there will be transformation, not only in you, but in us. And we will see peace and a harvest of righteousness that not only will reflect the fact that God is at work in us, but it'll also be a powerful testimony to the fact that Jesus is alive. Because we wouldn't be us had it not been for the fact of the resurrection. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I just thank you so much that Jesus is alive, that we have experienced his transformation. And Lord, I just pray for forgiveness for, for those times where all of us have allowed worldly demonic wisdom to control us. We haven't gone either to share a wound or to seek forgiveness for causing one. Lord, this is a simple little message, but it's so important. I pray, Father, for this congregation of people, that you would cause us to be men and women who are peacemakers, that we would sow seeds of peace that will grow and nurture that we can grow and nurture and that will become in time a harvest of righteousness for the glory and the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in his name.